Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Mike, not to be confused with Mikey, who taught yesterday. Um, and so I, I am from Torrance, and I work at a church called Kings Harbor. Uh, yeah. And so super excited to be with you this week. Uh, let me do a couple of things. Number one, maybe you're here and, and maybe this is your first time, not just at Hume, but maybe in a camp experience or maybe even in a church experience. And so one, I, I want to give you a lot of permission, permission this week to, to find your way. Um, one of the things that I realized, this is cool. And Mikey joked yesterday about when you walked in and you saw what was going on, and maybe you're like, I have no idea what's going on. That may be true with uh, the way that Hume feels because it's, a, it's an amazing campground. And maybe you just need to take a second to even take it all in. And, and that's good. And, and we want to create space for you to do that. But two, there may be this reality. Um, we don't say this anymore, but a generation ago, we used to use this, this phrase, fake it till you make it. And it's this reality that, okay, everybody else knows what they're doing, but I don't know what I'm doing. And I just want to give you permission to be honest with where you are. And so maybe as you come in this week, maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible and we, and we say, hey, go to Daniel chapter one. That's actually where we will be this morning. Um, your Bible has a thing called a table of contents, just like any other book that you might read. Use it. Don't feel shame with that. Um, when you're working through your Bible, maybe you're looking at all of this text and there's big numbers and small numbers. And so just so you know, maybe if you're brand new to the Bible, that big number tells you what chapter you're in, what those small number tells you what verse we're in. And that, that like, there's no shame if you, you don't know what that is. Like, I want you to be comfortable with where you are. The second thing I want to do is I just want to set a really clear goal for you this week. Our heart for you whether this is your first ever experience like this or whether you've been doing this as long as you possibly could, is that you would know and love Jesus more than you did when you came up here. And so all cards on the table, everything that we sing, everything that we say, everything that you see in these videos are to show you the beauty of who Jesus is and, and hopefully turn your heart towards following after him. And so like, we're not gonna be shy about that. We're not gonna back away from that. We want that for you. And so even as we work through the next several days over and over again, and you already sang some of those things this morning that point you to the greatness, the beauty, uh, the richness of who God is, and we hope that they won't be just songs that you sing or things that teachers say, but it will be things that you believe and are convinced of, just as Mikey said. And so as we jump in, let me tell a story, and I think it may help us understand these first couple of verses of where we'll be in Daniel uh, this morning. And so um, this morning, my wife texted me, and you know she, she's at home with my two boys, Apollo and Julius. Apollo's five, Julius is two, um, and so she is a rock star because she's loving our kids well, working full time, doing the whole thing. And so when she, usually when I'm on a trip and she texts me, you know, it's like, hey, I'm praying for you or, man, just asking the Lord to do amazing things amongst the people that you're with. This morning, the text message was, can you get on Amazon and order X for me? And so I was like, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't as sweet as I expected it to be. Um, but the reality is that relationships are like this. That one person will be in one place and one person will be in another place and they need or they want something and so they'll message them and say, either can you get this or what do you think about getting this? And this is as old as there has been things in the world. And so there's a story. I don't know if it's true, but it will make sense for the message, so I'm gonna use it whether it's true or not. Um, there's a woman 
who was at this auction of great treasures and famous works, and she saw this painting that was one of those once-in-a-lifetime paintings. It was one of those things that you usually will travel to a, a place to go into a museum to have this thing, and it was right in front of her. It was being sold at an auction. And so back in that day, they didn't have text messaging, but they had a thing called telegrams. And so if you don't know what a telegram is, a telegram was a, like a very slow text message back in the day where somebody would send a message, they would send it to an operator, the operator would send it to a messenger, the messenger would show up at the house and they would read the message to you. And because it was such an uh, involved way of sharing information, it was sent by, you, you were charged by character that you used to send the message. So this woman seeing this painting, wanting it desperately, writes her husband, tells him, hey, it's this, of this really great price, uh, can we get it? He gets the message, reads the message, responds back to her and remember that you get charged by character. And so he puts no punctuation in the message. All he says is no cost too high. So she, she, he sends it back, goes to the operator. The operator gets it to the messenger. The messenger shows up, reads the message to the wife, and, the, he, and what she hears is not no, comma, the cost is too high. She hears no, no cost is too high for you, babe. And so she buys this expensive painting. And the reason that I tell you the story is not because I'm teaching you how to make telegrams or send text messages, though punctuation matters. It's this reality that when you see something beautiful, you don't care what it will cost you to have it. And my hope over the next several days is that when you see the beauty of Jesus, that you will not be deterred by maybe the cost that it may cost you to follow and trust him, but you would say, no cost too high. So here's our main idea this morning. Serving Jesus will bring us into conflict with the society around us. Faithfulness is both costly and worth it. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into Daniel chapter one. So Jesus, I pray this morning that we'll begin this journey of seeing how valuable and beautiful you are and that we would say because of that, there's no cost too high for us to be faithful and to follow after you. Help us, we need you. It's in your matchless name I'll pray, amen. Daniel chapter one, starting in verse one, says this. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, this feels a little unfair because while we're jumping into chapter one, verse one, it also feels like there's some story here that you and I don't know about. And so it's kind of like when you're watching your favorite movie or favorite show, um, they do a thing called an establishing shot. Are there any fans of The Office in the house? And so when you start the show, The Office, the first images that you begin to see are these pictures of Scranton, Pennsylvania. And what they're trying to do is try and give you a sense of what's going on, what this place is. And before you immerse in the, the craziness of working at a paper company, you're, you're getting to see what's happening in the, uh, in the city, what people value, what people think, landmarks that are important. And in a lot of ways, this is an establishing shot. 
the narrator of the book of Daniel is trying to bring your attention to something's happening here that's not usual to grab your attention to say, let's pay attention to what God's going to do next. And so here's how he starts with these simple words. He's giving you a time marker in the third year of King Jehoiakim of Judah that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came in and laid siege to the city. How did we get here? Uh, it's interesting because he makes a distinction. Uh, one thing that you need to know is that uh, the people of God, Israel, they started out as one united people. There were 12 tribes that came from the 12 sons of a man named Jacob. And this was the promise of God all the way back in Genesis to this guy named Abram that he said, I'm going to make your family this nation that can't be counted. That it's going to be like stars in the sky or sea or sand on the seashore. Like it will be an innumerable amount of people far beyond what you can imagine. Jacob had, or excuse me, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons, like an A and E show. Like they should have figured out how to stop. But they had 12 kids. These 12 kids grow into 12 tribes. These 12 tribes eventually, after being enslaved, get freed by God and become a nation. And after a long period of time, they eventually say, we want a king. And the first king that they bring in is a man named Saul. And Saul is the guy that looks the part. Um, people have this thing that we believe in called stereotypes, where you look at certain people and you look at them and you say, that person should lead. In fact, if you ever went and looked at the presidents of the United States, um, most of the presidents of the United States are six foot tall or taller because people look at certain people and say, because of how tall you are, you can lead. Now, let me just tell you, it does not matter how tall you are in the way that you lead. You can be six foot five and can't lead yourself out of a wet paper bag. But we have stereotypes that we believe in that this person looks the part. And so Saul was said to be a head taller than everybody else. Saul looked the part, the first king of Israel. But he wasn't a faithful king. And then the second king was a man named David. And even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might be familiar with David because if you've ever watched a sporting event where there's one really good team and one not so good team and they say, this is a David and Goliath matchup. They're referring to the story of this young boy in the Bible who tended the sheep, who stood up to a giant who was cursing the name of his God, took him out. And just in case you don't know, spoiler alert, he doesn't just hit him in the head with a rock, he cuts off his head with his own sword. I used to lead fourth grade boys Sunday school at a church a long time ago. I no longer work there. This may be why. Um, I was telling that story and I mentioned to the kids that David cut off Goliath's head and some kid was like, that's not how my mom reads the story. My response was, well, your mom is wrong. Um, just FYI, if you want to go into ministry, don't ever tell a kid their mom is wrong. And so David becomes this hero and goes from being just this young hero to ultimately being the king that God chooses, the greatest king that they had known, not just because he was the second one, but the greatest king that they will ever know because he is part of this tribe, Judah, part of what God's going to do to bring Jesus, his son, into the world in the future. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon is a wise and rich king. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam's a fool. Rehoboam's so bad, we are three generations into this kingdom, and now the kingdom splits into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Why am I telling you all this? 
Because as you read your Bible, if you read through the prophets, if you read, the prophets are um, what they look like poetic, but they are these people who have been given a message for God to either Israel or Judah to say, this is what God is doing and why. Change your direction and obey him. Or whether you're reading through books like First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, those are historical books that are telling you the story of this kingdom of people. What you read about Israel is that Israel never has a faithful king. That every single king that they have wants to go after the, the fake gods of the world. They want to ride the tide, if you will, and, fall and chase the current of whatever the culture is telling them is good besides what God is telling them is good. But Judah is different. Judah has kings that uh, sometimes they will follow the tide, but then they'll have kings that'll stand up and say, no, we can't do this. Get rid of all the fake idols. Get rid of all the false worship. Let's turn our hearts back to God. And so it's interesting in verse one, not just that Jehoiakim is a king of God's people, but Jehoiakim of Judah, this protected people who had been acting faithfully, that they had acted unfaithfully enough under his rule and reign that God said, it's time for you to face your enemy. It's time for you to face your brokenness. And let me, let me just say something to you. Leadership matters. The story that we're seeing is that the way that these kings are leading these people, that they're leading them in unfaithful ways, and so over and over again, when these leaders are unfaithful, the people become unfaithful, and it gets to a point that they are so unfaithful that the Lord said, we can't keep doing this, something needs to change, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in to be that change. Can I just say to you that in your life, leadership matters? And I'm not saying that so that way you can look to other people and say, well, if they're a good leader or a bad leader, I have an excuse for the way that I'm supposed to be. I'm saying to some of you in this room that because of your age and where you are in your student ministry, where you are in your life, that you are a leader. And as you lead, those who follow will be like you. Leadership matters. And in this moment, we see this really sad state of affairs that this enemy nation, Babylon, the strong, what feels like the strongest nation in the world, comes in, is kicking in the front door, is taking these people away from their homes, dragging them into exile, taking things that are part of their cultural worship and saying, now we're gonna just throw them in the treasury and make them part of what we use to worship it feels like they're losing their home and losing their identity and losing their distinction and even feels like they're losing God's faithfulness towards them. It feels like this is a terrible way to start a story. In fact, can you imagine what that might look or feel like if somehow as big as our nation is that some enemy came in and began to drag our leaders out of Washington DC, begin to take our works of art and the things that made us a culture and say, we're just gonna throw them in a vault somewhere so you can't see them anymore. Can you imagine what that would feel like? There are TV shows that try to depict this kind of crazy dystopian reality of where the, the world feels like we're falling apart and we're dragged out of what we know into something where we are now second-class citizens that are treated like we don't matter. This feels like a brutal reality. And the reason that I point to you about how broken and crazy and, and, and strange this feels is that should make verse two even that much more wild. Because verse two says, 
the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him. Hold up. It's bad enough that this enemy nation has come in and, and taken people and taken stuff and sieged the city and the, and the most faithful people of God, the tribe that's supposed to be protected, the tribe that's supposed to always have a king on the throne, that they all of a sudden are now enslaved and enchained. That already seems bad enough, but the narrator has the audacity to say to us in verse 2 that the Lord's involved in this, that the Lord handed him over. It's as if he's trying to say, hey, there's two realities going on. There's what you see. There's also what the Lord's up to. And, may, and maybe neither one of them makes sense to you. Maybe even in your life and in your world, there are these moments where it feels like things are out of control. Like somebody in charge should do something about this. And verse 2 is one of those verses that it it's not, doesn't seem on the surface like it's going to bring comfort, but it's meant to bring comfort that God wasn't asleep, that God wasn't on vacation, that God wasn't at Hume and couldn't get to his phone when Nebuchadnezzar showed up, but that God was still ultimately in control even of what was happening in difficult situations. Last night, Mikey made a statement that Resilient believers trust the living God. And man, that sentence is awesome when you're trusting the living God to, hey, Lord, I'm trusting you right now to help me get an A on this chemistry test. I know I didn't study, but I know that through osmosis in the spirit, you're gonna teach me the, the periodic table. Like it's great to, to trust the Lord when the stakes seem low, but that sentence feels like a really tall order to survive if all of a sudden the world feels like it's falling apart and the writer is saying that the Lord is involved in it. It's the type of thing that not just the Old Testament talks about, but even the New Testament. And so if you're in, unfamiliar with the Bible, the first portion of your Bible is called the Old Testament. This is before Jesus comes into the world, what God was doing in the world. There's usually a blank page in your Bible, and then it starts with the stories of the life of Jesus and then moves into letters that are being written to the church that comes because of the work of Jesus. And so in the New Testament, in one of those letters named Romans, there is this moment where Paul, who's the writer of Romans, will say, here's what often happens in the world, that people forget the value of God, that they get more interested in what God's created than in God himself. And then here's what God will do, is that God will say, if this is what you want, this is what you can have. Something in our world makes us feel like it's good to let people have what they want, but the reality of the scriptures is that's a sign of judgment if God says that I'm not gonna get in the way of you going after what you want. And this is what we're seeing with Judah, that Judah wanted to be like enemy nations, that they wanted to worship false gods, that they wanted to look like the world, that they wanted to ride the tide in the culture. And God says, if that's what you want, I'm gonna give you over to that. But let me, I'm gonna show you something about who I am even in the middle of. So at the same time, an enemy nation is moving in and taking over, and God yet still seems to be in control. And I'll just tell you, even though I'm sharing the message, my heart struggles at times with that. Because if God's in control, I want God to be in control, but I want him to be in control my way. 
Like, th- th- does anybody feel that? Like, okay, God, like, I know that you, well, the way that we sing about you, that we sing things like, all the earth will shout your praise, my, uh, my heart will cry, my bones will sing, great are you, Lord. Yes, 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 you're great, you're awesome, you're cool. However, I'm gonna need you to take some requests from me. And so there's this tension of, yeah, God, I want you to be in control, but here's how I want this to read. In the third year of the king, of, of King Jehoiakim of Judah, the Nebuchadnezzar showed up and God snapped his fingers and vaporized him. But instead, it says that the Lord is in power and he's handing them over that they might know and see something. And then it gets even harder because when Nebuchadnezzar takes these vessels, it's a strategic move. In the history of our world, when one nation wants to take over another, here's what they often do. They will take works of art and works of culture and they'll either destroy them or hide them so that way these people don't know their own story and they don't remember who they are. So even if you go back to World War II, one of the things that uh, Nazi Germany was famous for is that they would go in and they would go into art museums and and, and places that they were trying to siege and they would burn all the works of art except for the most valuable ones because they wanted the, the, the monetary value of that. And what they were doing was, we're getting rid of your culture so you don't remember who you are. And there's this moment that we're seeing where Nebuchadnezzar and even taking the things that they worship, it's part of this plan to say, and we, not only are we taking you from your home, but we don't want you to remember who you are. This is the difficulty of exile. Because exile is not just being removed from where you live. In fact, because we live on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, we, wouldn't ju- we won't just be removed from where we live. We're called to leave often where we live to go be part of what God's doing. So getting a new address isn't exile. Exile is losing your identity and losing the place and culture where your beliefs are accepted or favored or in the majority that all of a sudden you are now under the thumb of a different system of thinking and you have to survive even though there's conflict with the society around what you believe. And so in the book of Daniel, what we'll begin to see is that they're going, we're going to be introduced to some young men. We talked about them yesterday. Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, those are their Hebrew names. They're going to be introduced into a culture that they are no longer um, the majority and the way of their belief isn't um, what's most common. They are going to have their identity stripped from them, and yet they're going to have to be faithful in the midst of that. But for you and I, maybe nobody's trying to change our name or our address, and yet the world is increasingly saying that the way in which you live doesn't make sense for us. We don't want that to be the norm. We want that to be not even the exception. We just don't want it to exist. So how do you and I live as exiles? There's a letter in the New Testament by a man named Peter. Peter was one of the 12 followers of the closest followers of Jesus. And if you don't know anything about Peter, just know that Peter makes you feel a little bit better about yourself when you read the Bible. Um, Peter, here's some things that you need to know about Peter. There's a moment when Jesus takes his followers, or one of the words that you'll see that as in the Bible is disciples. He takes his disciples to a particular area that has all of these, these monuments to false gods around them. And in the middle of that setting, he would say, hey, who do people say that I am? 
And they would say, well, some people think that you're um, the prophet Elijah, this guy from the Old Testament that stood up against the, the, the culture and, and was willing to say that this is what God says, even when he felt like nobody else wanted to listen. Some would say that you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' uh, familial cousin, but John the Baptist had also lost his life. Like, and so, so you're, there was this voice, John was this voice that was calling out repentance about the kingdom of God. Some would say that you're him. And then, Jesus would say, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter would pipe up and respond, you're the son of the living God, to which God would say to him, yes, flesh and blood didn't help you learn this, that you got this directly from my father. This is a moment. This is a moment that you put on your resume. Jesus just said, I nailed it. And then like six verses later, Jesus says, I have to go to a cross. And Peter's like, nah, man, I'm not going to let you do that. So that's not how your Bible says. Let's be translated for you. And Jesus would respond, get behind me, Satan. In case you don't know what that means, on Mother's Day, if you text your mom, happy Mother's Day, Satan, that will not go well for you. <laughs> because that is not a compliment. He is saying you are opposed to the things of God and I'm calling it out. And so he goes from this moment of nailing it to being, made, to being called Satan. That's a, that's a bad turn. Or, uh, for instance, there's, a, there's another moment when Jesus is getting ready to wash the feet of his disciples because he's trying to show them that leadership is not about a title, but it's about a towel. It's not about being served, but it's about serving. And so he shows up to serve in that moment, goes to wash their feet. And Peter's like, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. And, and Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you don't have any part with me. And Peter's like, well, then you need to wash my whole body then. Hold up, bro, that's inappropriate. You can't be saying that to Jesus. But there's this reality that Peter doesn't understand, and it's evident that Peter doesn't understand. That Peter would say things like, well, even if everybody else turns against you, I won't turn against you. And then just shortly thereafter, falls asleep during prayer. No shame, that's happened to most of us. And then when they come to get Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off a dude's ear. So let's just have a real conversation. Number one, you shouldn't have, when you were planning for camp, I need deodorant. You should have got deodorant. I need, I need my pillow. I need my Bible. Let me go ahead and get my shank just in case it pops off during chapel. Like none of you thought that. And so Peter is bringing a sword to a prayer meeting, which doesn't make a lot of sense, and then he cuts off a dude's ear. How terrible does your aim have to be that you're trying to cut off a dude's head and all you get is his ear? Like these are just not highlight moments for this guy. And so this guy God uses to lead his church and to write to people, and the letter that he writes are to people who have been pushed out of their homes by the Roman Empire that are living all around Asia who have now been made exiles, who have lost their identity, lost their homes, lost the connection to what they know and who they love, lost their property, they have lost everything. And then here's what he would write to them in the second part of the letter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Can I just tell you how crazy that message sounds to say to people who've been pushed out of their homes because of what they believe that you've been chosen for this? That you are a special possession of God, that you could consider yourself royalty, that you can consider yourself those that carry the message of God, that in the middle of the exile that you're in, that God has given you a purpose. And I know that it seems crazy, but I'm telling you that God's going to use you to proclaim to others the excellency of who he is. This is how you and I live in exile with this recognition that God is setting this up by his power to show how marvelous he is. So I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. Serving Jesus will bring us into conflict with the society around us. Faithfulness is both costly and worth it. So the question I wanna leave you with this morning is what would you give up to know Jesus? And, and when, I, when I say know Jesus, I don't mean like this weird kind of social media know where we like know information about but have no relationship with. I mean like intimately know, walk with, have your life shaped by Jesus. I mentioned the Apostle Paul to you earlier. He's writing a letter to a church in a city called Philippi. And he has spent much of the letter trying to center their hearts on the importance of Jesus. In fact, if you ever read that letter uh, in the second chapter, chapter two, big number two, uh, verses five through 11, he begins to say, talk about Jesus and all that Jesus accomplished, making him, let, allowing himself to be human, allowing himself to die so that God could exalt him. And that is actually the center of the letter and everything else of the letter plays off of that singular idea of how important Jesus is. And so what he would write shortly after that in the third chapter is he would be writing about himself, and here's what he would say in verse four. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness, that is in the law, blameless. So here's what he's saying. My background and my performance make me better than everybody else. He's like, if you were just trying to measure what, what you have confidence versus what I have confidence, I'm from the right family. I mentioned to you Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So to be from the tribe of Benjamin is like to say your last name is Washington and you're related to George. Like you're important in that culture. To say that you were born of God's people, that you weren't like brought in as an outsider, that you were born into this level of righteousness. And then he would go on and say that we kept the customs, that on the eighth day that I was circumcised, that I've kept the law, that according to the law, I was blameless. Which just says, hey, maybe you stumbled a little bit. You're not going to find a day that I was off. He lays all that out, that where I come from, my family background, the way that I've lived my life, all of those things would be this beautiful picture that say, here's why I should be on God's team. And then he would say in verse seven, but everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Hear what he's saying. All the stuff that I told you is naturally mine. The family that I'm born into, the, the, my record of doing things right, all of that doesn't matter. I'd give all of that up. I would treat all of that not just as trash, but as dung, as, as basically not something that is worthless to anybody except for the grass as fertilizer. I'd give all of that up for the simple joy of knowing the fullness of who Jesus is. That I would give being important in the culture, that I would give, having, give up having status as being seen as important. I would give all of that stuff up that I might know him. And then he would say some crazy stuff, part of it that we love, that I would know him in the power of his resurrection. The greatest miracle that's ever happened in our earth is that Jesus, who was dead, gets up out of the grave and says, death, you don't have any power over me anymore, and therefore you don't have any power over those that follow me when I make this thing right. I want to know Jesus in that that power. I want to know the power of Jesus that pushes back darkness and changes the world and makes things right. Like, I want to know Jesus in that power. And if that verse stopped there, it would be my favorite verse in the entire Bible. But then he goes on to say, and I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Those words in that sentence don't seem to make sense to me. Because we don't like pain, we don't like struggle, we don't like death, and we certainly don't like to think that there's a way of knowing God in that. And yet, over the next five sessions of the book of Daniel, we're going to see that in the middle of brokenness and suffering, there's a way of knowing something about God that you might not know in your comfort. And Paul would say that I want to know him so badly that I would give up all the stuff that everybody else chases I would give up all the stuff that the tide would wash up and tell us is good, that I might know him both in the fullness of his power, but also in the depth of suffering, that I might know the beauty of Jesus. I just want to tell you, and my punctuation is correct on this, there is no cost too high for knowing the goodness of Jesus. Let me pray for us. So Jesus... Thank you this morning that the journey that we're going to take through the book of Daniel is going to give us the opportunity to see your goodness and your kindness even in the midst of brokenness. So Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to be honest about where we are. For some of us, we have a a strong, real, intimate relationship with you. For others, maybe we're trying to figure out who you are and where we stand with you. Maybe for others, we're a lot like Israel, where we have known you, but it feels so much easier to conform to what the world around us would say is good. But Lord, I pray that our desire to know you would surpass everything else. Paul would use the language of the surpassing worth Your value is greater than everything else. And would we settle in our hearts that there's no cost too high, that there are distractions that we'll ignore this week that we might know you better, that there are conversations that we'll enter into honestly and vulnerably because we want to know you. 
that there's a way of worshiping you this week that we'll enter into, giving ourselves over in devotion to you, regardless of what people around us are doing, because there's no cost too high of knowing you, because you want to be shown even in the middle of the mess. We trust you for that, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.